Hi everybody, I'm Peter Travers. Welcome to Popcorn, where we tell you what's happening at the movies. And there's a little movie out now called Ready Player One. Steven Spielberg knocked it off, I think, in a day and a half when he had time between projects. Actually, I'm joking. It's a major, major movie. Uh, based on an Ernest Cline novel about the video game world and everything in it. My guest today, Simon Pegg, I know, you people love him in the Cornetto trilogy, you love him in Mission Impossible and Scotty in Star Trek, and yet who he's playing here is so mysterious that even I am afraid to question him. But (laughs) I am. (laughs) Welcome, Simon. Thank you. Great to have you here. I see you there. Yes. On that poster. So tell, because people come out of corners and attack me if you get even close to a spoiler. Well, yeah, there's, there's, yeah. there are secrets to hopefully remain intact so that the viewer can, you know, see the film as intended. I play the part of Ogden Morrow, who is the co-creator of this virtual world called The Oasis. Uh, he created it with James Halliday, played by the inimitable Mark Rylance. Mm-hmm. Um, I am the kind of jobs to his was, you know, I'm the guy that uh, was able to take the product <laughs> to the masses and deliver it as a, you know... Um, uh, as a thing with a slightly more adept, gregarious social ability, whereas whereas Mark's character, James Halliday, was never happy in the real world, is unable to kind of communicate and connect in the real world, and which explains why he's created this sort of artificial um, realm in which he prefers to exist. Well, yeah, who is happy with the real world? Well, this is the thing that the, <laughs> the film is kind of... I mean, aside from the fact that I think we're not that far off from what the film sort of projects as our future we're kind of there now with social media as a place where we can you know invent ourselves and project versions of ourselves which we we want people to see and and are inclined to spend a little bit too much time there you know uh well we have avatars yeah they do here if you don't like the way you look you can create this other thing to be well this is this is in the oasis it's it's the extrapolation of your best selfie you know the thing that everyone has is their (laughs) kind of best selfie. yeah you put it through filters and you make yourself look as good as possible and that's the picture on your twitter account or your instagram with this it's like a walking talking three-dimensional version of yourself which you have completely constructed I, I want to invent one now. I know. It <laughs> Let's makes just you do think, an avatar interview. What show. would you? you like, would we you can pick make like it the happen. best you, or would you pick a, a completely different? Shape, oh, I'd go know? out into a creature. You know, oh, you I just would? think it would be so much more fun. Like to a be giant, one of those. multi-limbed Peter Travis. <laughs> That's it. Just, <laughs> just make that happen for You it. could. I know, yeah. I'm, I've got to ask, the, because Og, as those intimates call him, yes. you know, as I do, yes, as a person who's seen the film. Og, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the great and glorious Og. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, me never giving away anything. Sure. Don't want to do it. But I, what was the attraction that Steven Spielberg had to you? Are you just a video game fanatic? Are you living in that world? No, I mean, not really. Come on, be honest. There was a time when I was very much a gamer, and then I had children, and that you realize what a waste of time (laughs) video games is when there's important things to do, like keep a human being alive. It's a great one. I want that quote for the movie. (laughs) What a waste of time video games. But then when they get old enough to play with you, then suddenly you you remember. Mm -hmm. And and she is now, so we, we play a lot of video games together. But the thing that attracted me to it really... It was Spielberg, obviously. You know, he's someone I have grown up loving and he shaped my love of film in many ways. 
Um, he wrote the book on creating a certain kind of big cinema, but with an artistic sensibility. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the guy that that is able to invest a blockbuster with art. You know, with with art, oh, yeah, art, sure. artfulness. You know, and so when I got the call, Steven Spielberg wants to talk to you. I was like, Yeah, okay, I don't need to. I'll do it. Uh, then I learned <laughs> that was it. Yeah. You, didn't, you didn't give him one of those. Can't you see I'm with people? No, I was like, right? Hi, Stephen. Yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> sure, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I heard you annoyed him terribly on the set. No, I, I'm very careful on the set. I mm -hmm. have to restrain my my sort of fanboy affection in a way because he's the source. You know, he's mm -hmm. the source code for modern cinema, and, and the temptation is to say, Tell me about Jaws. Tell me about. But he's very forthcoming with stories because in between takes or in between shots when we're setting stuff up and we're hanging out and chatting, when he talks, his, that's his life. So you can casually bring up a story about something you did and he'll say, oh yeah, I remember when I was shooting fill-in classic film here. And he'll tell you a great anecdote. And, um, and in, a, in such a way that's always very sort of humble and doesn't feel like he... he doesn't, I, I don't think he feels the need to assert himself because he's Steven Spielberg. He's, yeah. a, jo he's a joy to be around. I asked him once um, whether he read critics and whether he was concerned with what people said yeah. and how his children reacted. And he, he said, they, my children react much the way you do to my films in, in an annoying way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> points out these things that might happen. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. What, we all hear about this, but what's the experience of actually working with him? I mean, you... You were involved in Band of Brothers yeah. in some way, and yeah. I know you got. I, if it's a lie, you're going to crush me. But when you did Paul, oh, yeah, isn't he, he in he doing is, yeah. a little bit in that? He comes into. Well, we did Tintin, so we got to know him. And then mm -hmm. when we were doing Paul, a few months later, we called him and said, Stephen, you're in our movie. Do you want to voice yourself? Mm -hmm. And he was like, sure. Turned up on his own, no entourage, did his cameo. You know, it was fantastic. And then with this film, you know, so I've, I've got the opportunity to work with him several times. For me, as a film fan and as a filmmaker, watching his method is, is inspiring, you know, because mm -hmm. he, as a director, he possesses all the qualities you need to be a great director. I think there are some directors that can understand how you move a camera to create tension and what have you. There are some directors that are great one-on-one -on -one with the actors. Mm -hmm. Not all of them have everything, but Stephen mm -hmm. does. He knows how to talk to us. He, his instincts are always right, and at the same time, he completely is fluent in the language of, of camera work, you know, and how to, how to say things by just drifting slightly to the right or the left, you know, he's, he's the, the whole package. Now that though you have this close personal relationship from those other films, when you got on the set of Ready Player One, were you just, Steve, baby, this is how I see it? <laughs> I would never refer to it as Steve, baby. Baby, no, no. Um, Although I'm sure he wouldn't mind, to be honest. Uh, it was it's it gets easier because I get um, I never I never lose that sense of, of thrill when he comes into the room because of who he is and he'll <laughs> never not be that person for me. But it's easier to just relax into it and, and do my do my job. When Nick and I worked with him for the first time on Tintin, we were, you know, constantly are like, is this happening? And and we'd have conversations, then have to go and jump up and down in the hallway and scream. Nowadays I'm I'm a little cooler with it, but um, it's always fun, you know. But now in the days uh, where this is a huge movie, mm. you're now the man who's in Star Treks and Mission Impossibles. These big, giant movies are nothing to you. I've kind of lucked out, I think. I don't know about that. Nothing. Oh, come on. The <laughs> early days, the budgets on those movies were what? 
four million dollars, probably. Yeah, I think which that was is, Shaun of the Dead was six million. Dollars. Which is chump change in yeah. this world. So it's like a, a day and a half on Ready Player One. That was the, the cake yeah. budget on Ready Player One. <laughs> yes, it, um, it definitely is. Yeah, but I try and stay. I'm, the, the films I'm I'm doing this year, having finished Mission Impossible Fallout a couple of mo- weeks ago. The next couple of films I'm doing are very small, micro-budget movies uh, because I like to to stay in touch with that side of filmmaking as well. It's a different energy and a different kind of process, and one I don't want to lose touch with. So, it's and I, but I don't do the big ones so I can do the small one. I love doing the big ones. You They're love doing film. it, yeah, yeah because it's like be, the, one of the great things about Ready Player One is it's love. It's pretty much mm. about the 1980s yeah. and what happened in the 1980s. And if you're watching the movie, you can enjoy it more if you know what those things are. I think so. From I, Alien to Zemeckis. It's yes. all basically hinted at there. It was, it's interesting because I watched it with my daughter, who's eight, and she didn't... Obviously, she was born in, in 2009. <laughs> so she has no... Although, to be fair, I have taken her through... We've watched a lot of the Amblin movies together. She's seen Back to the Future. She's seen Goonies. She's mm-hmm. seen all those movies. A couple of the things I'm sure she probably got but huge parts of it in terms of the subtext she didn't get but that didn't change her enjoyment of the adventure of the movie of no because the ride is yeah, right there the ride is yeah, there yeah. and i think you know the whole thing with the nostalgia in the film which people have made a lot of there's there's more caution there than people would would kind of uh, perhaps assume i think because it is fun to play a little bingo with the with the, what you can see in the background at the same time it's about a man who cannot let go of his past and as a result doesn't really have a, a proper life, you know. So it's as much saying nostalgia is a dangerous thing as it is a, a fun thing. I think when you're watching the movie, though, it's the fun, isn't it? You just get so wrapped up you in ha- I it's... think you have to see, and I always feel like I'm being Mr. Cynical kind of corporate party line here about saying it, seeing it, seeing it more than once, but you genuinely, if you're going to get everything, if you're a completist, You'll need to see this film about 25 times. 25? You know, okay, just to yeah. get... Like the second time I saw it, I started spotting stuff that I hadn't seen the first time. Yeah, things that I should have spotted. You know, the, the, the pod from 2001 mm-hmm. is in H's workshop and various little, you know, subtle uh, movie references. Slightly oh. more classic references are in there, you know. But was this... I mean, Spielberg does an unusual thing with this is that in that he basically invented the 80s. <laughs> And from whether it's Raiders or Jaws, or, yeah. that was the 70s, but um, E.T. Yeah, yeah. And basically, he's not alluding to his movies very much at all. It was an interesting conundrum, I think. And he, being as sort of self-effacing and humble as he is, he was kind of, he resisted acknowledging the fact that he is the architect of, one of the architects of modern spectacular cinema, you know. Mm-hmm. And you can't make this movie and have it be believable unless there is some reference to him in there. And I think the, the DeLorean was like as far as he'd go as a producer sure. on that movie. Mm-hmm. But they got him to put the T-Rex in there because, you know. They sneaked it in on him Spielberg. one day. I know, it's like, <laughs> like it or not, whether you're sort of a, you know, a, 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 have a lot of humility like he does, you have to recognize that you are very responsible for how this kind of cinema exists today. Well, what about you growing up being the twisted individual that you are? <laughs> Who can make these movies that I love so much? Why? What were you watching in that time? Was it that kind of movie? Was it yeah. the adventurous kind of thing, or were you just uh, with uh, Kislowski, you know, and watching as, art films? As I got older, as a kid, I was I was ten when Raiders came out, so I was mm-hmm. the perfect age, and seven when Star Wars came out. So I was I was the target 
person for those films. You know, that was my formative childhood watching Star Wars uh, and with Spielberg Raiders E.T. Close Encounters later in a way because it's slightly more grown up a film but mm-hmm. 13, 14 and I was straight there with it. And then, um, yeah, so for me my, my teens were the cinema of spectacle. As I graduated into f- studying film that's when I embraced the likes of the Coen brothers and, you know, more sort of... Um, loftier supposed mm-hmm. kind of but I always say you know with Stephen he has that that ability to 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 do both you know there's incredible artfulness in his films even though it's pure entertainment a lot of the time and he demonstrates this when he makes grown-up supposed films like Private Ryan or, 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 or Schindler's List mm-hmm. he has the ability to invest a really serious not disposable ability into his work, even the most popcorny kind of films, Raiders. You look at Raiders; it's just beautifully put together. It is structured, yeah. written, mm-hmm. executed, and people forget that. People think blockbusters are oh, that just needs to be a light show. That's not true, you know. Oh no, because with him, there's always an emotional center. Somewhere, totally, yeah. You know, and you get that in this. Yeah, I'm just treading carefully about. Uh, yeah, <laughs> where it's coming from, right, and right, right. what, and because people will all go out and see that, you know. Oh, I always think it's. I mean, I think he 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 writes from his heart always, and you can see that in in things like he wouldn't make Close Encounters now because Roy Neary would never leave his family like he does. But Stephen didn't have those connections at that, that point in his life, people, right? You know? Those those children yeah. that are everywhere. Yeah. And you look at a film like Temple of Doom. I think him and George Lucas were going through sort of messy divorces at the time. It's their divorce movie. Do you know what I mean? It's full mm-hmm. of like, <laughs> it's a bit angry that film, you know? So, so is E.T. I, you know? I know, yeah. Well, yeah, E.T., yeah. you have the same thing, you know, the, the absent But see, and... that's why I think he's the perfect person to direct this, mm-hmm. uh, because he's the guy, as a child of divorce himself, yes. who has found an escape, basically, in film in television in the early days of video games yeah yeah when i went to his office for the first time there was a a joystick on every chair yeah yeah, and there's a screen and there's if you wanted to have that minute you can get lost in that thing to do it you know yes he's a part of the real world but but he loves that escape yeah i think and i think it makes him a truthful filmmaker because people who try and guess what people are thinking or what people are feeling often miss the mark. But if you come at it from an emotional center, something you truly feel, uh, you know, which with Stephen was probably, you know, his relationship with his father, things like that. And now his family, just the love he feels, that that all makes it feel so much more authentic, you know. While you're having all this fun. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly, I know. That's it, while While you're doing that. You can think (laughs) about that and saying, Maybe I shouldn't be playing games all the time. I know, I you know. know. It's true. It's Maybe true. Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know. Yeah. And then I'll go yeah, back just... to I'll go back to something else to yeah. do it. But you, you seem to be avoiding me totally on when you became the twisted individual you are. I think. I probably... think was it puberty? No. Well, you know what happened in the in the nineteen eighties in the UK when video when VHS first appeared mm-hmm. in the UK. It was unregulated. And also the studios hadn't really realized the power of what video could be in terms of home entertainment. So there were no new releases coming out in sort of in the early 80s. Everything was like all the video stores were like archival sort of treasure troves of stuff that was coming in from Europe and odd old titles from America that had found their way onto VHS. And then there was this big panic about video nasties, as they were called in the UK, when they when Mary Whitehouse, who was our censor, she banned tons of stuff including great movies a lot of schlock 
that was, you know, harmless, but not to her. I'm already still at Mary Whitehouse. I know, that was her name, yeah. That's so great. She was this prim, proper, you know, she controlled all of our sort of what was decent. (laughs) But a lot of films like Dawn of the Dead, Romero's Dawn of the Dead, um, Evil Dead, Sam Raimi, they all got caught up in this ban and they became these illicit things that you had to get under the counter. Which makes them so much more. Absolutely. So I was watching... You know, the films of John Landis and John Carpenter, Sam Raimi, George Romero in my friend's houses, like with the curtains closed in case we got caught. And that, for me, fostered that love of of the, you know, the slightly more absurd kind of uh, schlocky horror. But smart as well. All those guys are smart guys. They were just well, making yeah. Crazy it's just movies. that you know, if you think it's a sin to watch it, it's going to be so much better. Absolutely. Yeah. You just, <laughs> just want to be in that world to do yeah. it. Yeah. So when you, I mean, when I first talked to you, when you were doing the uh, Shaun of the Dead and mm-hmm. uh, Hot Fuzz and the World's End, it, it, you were like a Star Wars person mm-hmm. from like the beginning of time. Yeah, from 1970. It was just something you just loved. Beyond, and you got your wish. Yeah, which was a strange experience because I wound up in Star Wars, literally in Star Wars, and, um, and it, was, it was very cathartic. I felt like in a way I've, I finished my Star Wars love then because like being in it being in the the whole 3D I was like okay I'm done now and I honestly feel it's it's an odd tell everybody that character that you play Uncar Plutt it's it's a great name it was a big fat suit in Abu Dhabi (laughs) 50 degree heat I I, I felt like all those documentaries I watched as a kid of of like you know Greedo with a hairdryer stuck in his mouth Mm -hmm. that was me I had like you know air conditioning jammed into my suit and but there were gonk droids walking around and stormtroopers. It was like being in it was like being in the Oasis, but for Star Wars, you know. I was like, I'm in Star Wars, dressed as something that's not me. And um, it's like such a dream come true totally. that you might come out of there and say, What's left? I have well, I no mountains did. to climb. That feeds into this movie because I I did Star Wars and and then got the gig writing um, Star Trek Beyond, which mm-hmm. was, you know, to be given the keys to that kingdom was an extraordinary privilege, but also incredibly daunting, emotionally taxing. And, but we got that film made and finished shooting it in Abu uh, in, yeah, in Abu, in, no, in Dubai we finished shooting it. And I got back to the UK and I just thought, what do I do now? I don't know if I want to do anything ever again. I feel like I've fulfilled all my sort of childhood dreams. And I said to my agent in the US, uh, I said, look, I'm going to take six months off. I need to think about what I want to do next. If I want to do anything next, don't call me unless Steven Spielberg rings. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> yes, and totally it came true. in right after that At call. At Christmas, right. I got the call. It was like, <laughs> yeah, he called. <laughs> don't like... call me. <laughs> it, was a, it, was a, it was a flippant remark and it, it, it came back. This happens a lot, though, because I remember saying, in an interview in the UK in, in 2000, after Sean came out and, and they asked me if I was going to go off to Hollywood because mm-hmm. in the UK they have this weird attitude towards British actors who go to Hollywood. It's like a betrayal and uh, they're proud of you, but at the same time they hate you for no, it. No, they hate you mostly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they say, oh, you're going to go off and go to Hollywood now, are you? And I said, well, I'm not going to go off and be in like, I don't know, Mission Impossible 3, which was a, a, a title I picked out of the air. It didn't exist even as a film. And literally three months later, JJ called. And was like, hey, I saw Shaun of the Dead. Do you want to come and be a Mission Impossible 3? And I said, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. 
Of what do you do. mean? <laughs> you had that line. It was it was famous in space when you were starting out doing that. Yeah, yeah. Where it was, what is it? It's like every as, old it, numbered Star Trek movie is, is a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's and then what I it ended is. up writing. Eleven Star Trek, eleven or thirteen, <laughs> or whatever it is. Yeah. So I think everything you basically it's true just crap on. This is I'm I'm, I'm like a walking <laughs> episode of the Twilight Zone. You should pick something really amazing <laughs> the man that you who don't want to do. No, <laughs> yeah, really. I know, right? Just yeah. keep saying that. To do oh, I that. hate the Cohen brothers. It's, I, I hate really them. wish. I hope they <laughs> never call me. <laughs> it's all going to happen. Paul Thomas Anderson. Who's oh, he? Who's he? he? I don't want any. The of last this. thing I want to do is one of his terrible <laughs> movies. <laughs> it's great. You this is a whole theory of of life here now. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a walking practice. sort of, uh, yeah. It's working for you. Reverse psychology. Yeah. Well, what's this thing we keep hearing that Quentin Tarantino wants to get involved in Star Trek? Now? Yeah, I think Quentin had, has an idea about Star Trek, which he's had for a long time. And I think everyone just assumes in a very reductive way that, oh, it's Quentin. It's going to be people swearing at each other and shooting phasers at each other's mm-hmm. heads, which is, which is, for a start, a, a, a very reductive view of his work. But I think, you know, he's a fan of Star Trek. He used a quote from uh, Roth of Khan at the beginning of Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he has an idea. And I think he just, out of interest, wandered into Bad Robot and discussed it with JJ. And we all got an email saying, oh, guess who came into the office yesterday? And I think they're exploring the idea. I don't think Quentin will direct it. As far as I can see, he's got his um, California project he's got on. And I think he's only going to make one film after that if he... He says that, so I think, I think you should basically say, Quentin, do not call me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because here it is. I'm not going to work again unless Quentin Tarantino calls. <laughs> but, but playing Mr. Scott, to play Scotty in that's another iconic thing. Yeah, yeah. For a generation that grew up on it. That's, yeah. That's it, and now it's you. Well, your daughter is young enough to not know about any of these things and to see you in it. What does she love you most in? She likes YouTube. You know, I mean, that's who... That she's <laughs> oh, that's impressed great. by... That's the way it's all going to yeah. end up, isn't it? She yeah. likes... I mean, I take, I take her onto the set of every film I do and she hangs out with all of the people I work with and they so all... So she can hang with Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, and, and he loves her because she's kind of like... She'll come on set and he's like, oh, he wants to talk to her and she shows him little films she's made. But ultimately, she's... She wants to meet Miranda Sings and Dan TDM and all these people that... Oh, God, they all love Miranda. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to see her and what she's impressed by. You know, if I was... I remember she was on set of Star Wars and, and she was sat talking to BB-8 and the guys who control BB-8 were just behind the scenes, like, activating him. Mm-hmm. So for her, he was just alive and talking to her and she was chatting with him and she hugged him and stuff. And <laughs> Do you I like would Miranda have exploded. <laughs> BB-8's doing this. If, she, if Miranda Sings was doing BB-8's voice, that would have been the ultimate. It would have just been pleasure unknown yeah. for anybody else to do it. But I think she was so together in that moment and loved it. But I think if that had been one of her YouTube personalities, she would have been a lot more kind of freaked out and impressed. Yeah. Can we... times change. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't. Yeah. You know, at the yeah, same true, time, true, true. It, it just sort of levels all that whole idea of celebrity. It just yeah. brings it down to what actually is in my life yes. that <laughs> I'm really concerned about. Totally. What about you and Nick Frost? What about ever coming back to, you know, I should ask you to do it. I sort of know the answer, but people mm. call those three films the Cornetto yes. trilogy because yes. that's an ice cream. That's correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, what does it mean to those people? Why is why is it named after ice cream? That was purely because we put uh, Edgar wrote it into Shaun of the Dead, 
as a hangover cure for mm -hmm. Ed in the morning. Ice and, cream. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. as the Cornetto, the, specifically the, the, the strawberry Cornetto, uh, which is a British confection. I think maybe we can, you can get it overseas now, probably thanks to us. Um, <laughs> and then we got free ones, the premiere of Shaun of the Dead, and we were just young jobbing actors who had never heard of such a thing as three, free ice cream. So when we wrote Hot <laughs> no. Fuzz, we thought, hey, why don't we put Cornettos in Hot Fuzz and maybe we'll get more free ice cream at the premiere. And then we thought, wouldn't it be funny if, if all these three films were linked by this single thing, you know, and, and we could, in a, in a Kozlowski sense, in the three <laughs> colours kind of way, link three thematic, thematic sequels, not direct sequels, by this one thing. And that's what it became, almost as a sort of lofty, ironic lofty filmmakers um kind of thing and so they they're they're, they're all joined by this one confection the strawberry ice cream in the first the one. strawberry it's the strawberry cornetto in uh, shawn of the dead mm -hmm. the classic uh blue cornetto in hot fuzz and the green mint cornetto in the world's end when all the aliens are, yeah. are popping out doing exactly. that do people in this industry come up to you and basically all remember these is that what they love the most about you? Sean, particularly, yeah, and I think because yeah. it's been around the longest, but um, yeah, all of them, and, and it's nice for Edgar and myself, it's, it, it's lovely to have made a, a body of work, and, and, and we will work together again, but that, to have completed like a little three film cycle. So we're not going, you're not doing a second trilogy. No, I don't know what we'll do I next. I hate you. <laughs> I want the second Maybe trilogy. we will, maybe it'll be a Okay, that's a much better a answer quadrilogy. for someone like me who's so longing word. to see <laughs> what that is. There's a lot of flavors of ice cream oh, besides absolutely. those three. Well, Edgar and myself, we're, you know, we're friends first and foremost, and Nick. Nick and I have just started a production company together in the UK, so we're, we're going to be- So that friendship is solid. Oh, absolutely. I bring it up because it, it goes to Ready Player One. Yes. And it goes to your character in yeah, a way yeah, yeah. about friendship and how important it is. The in, real connections. Yeah. yeah, in what people feel. And yeah. if you forget what's important, uh, totally. you're not going to get anything out of it. I feel like my relationship with Edgar and Nick is kind of home for me. That's my, that's my baseline, you know, and, and where I always go back to. And we're always, even today I was talking to Edgar about, when are we going to, we need to get together and find a moment. Of course, because Baby Driver was such a big hit and, <laughs> and he's obviously busy. I'm busy, Nick's busy. It's finding a gap in that busyness where we can all three of us sit down. And it will happen, I have no doubt. I'd be terribly sad if it didn't. I can't imagine a situation short of one of us leaving the planet where it won't happen. Mm -hmm. But it's just a question of when, really. So that means you've gone completely Hollywood. If it fits into my schedule, I know, perhaps right? it'll happen. But I've, we've made this little <laughs> boutique production company in the UK. It's very much centered there. We're making films for the love of it, but TV for the business side of it. And, um, and there'll be plenty of things emanating from that, from me and Nick at least. And then when we can get with Edgar, it'll happen again. How is that all going over with you in terms of how we watch television now, how we binge watch things, and how... Well... Is that interesting to you to yeah. create something like that, a 10-episode version? Totally, of because cause television used to be a, a strange, distant cousin of film. It was a box. It was a four-by-nine shape. You, you had to squeeze and cut films to be on it. They were broken up by commercials, all these kind of things. A, f a film on television was never a, a particularly cinematic proposition. Now, television itself is becoming cinematic, and you can tell a story. Take, say, The Handmaid's Tale, which was recently adapted mm -hmm. from Margaret Atwood. That would be a very difficult film to make, but 10 hours with a cinematic scope, and you've got a, an amazing new long-form way of telling stories on the big screen. Mm -hmm. We all have big screens in our houses now, you know. So it's a... It's a but it, a younger generation's watching it there. Your daughter's yeah. watching YouTube. 
people are watching movies. I, it gives me a shudder yeah. to imagine watching Ready Player One on your phone. Absolutely. But I agree. people I, will do it. But I also think that it's not necessarily the size of the screen that's, the, that, that's the, where the tragedy lies of, of, of theatrical cinema you know, possibly diminishing. It's the communal experience of watching a film with a whole bunch of strangers and sharing that emotion with them. That's what we lose from watching stuff at home. It's not the fact that we're seeing it smaller. It's the fact that we're seeing it alone, you know, and that goes back to the connections thing about being in a room with lots of people for real, not in, a, in an imaginary way. Mm -hmm. You know, when we watch TV, we're kind of in the oasis because the audience is out there, but it's completely virtual to us. But in a cinema, in a movie theater, you're sat next to people, you're laughing with them, crying with them. And it, 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 it lends itself toward community and, and making sure that we stay connected with each other. You know? That's a real theme of Ready Player One. What I love about the digital visor, mm. uh, you know, that we're watching Ty Sheridan wear. Yeah. Um, and he's in this world with his friends that he only met in the Digiverse. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't know them in the real world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But their focus is complete. If you go to a Cineplex today, yeah, yeah. you will see people with phones on their laps. Yeah. You know, so they're not having that focus. Yeah. Here, that focus is total. Yes, Once absolutely. you're in the game, in the Oasis, that's it. Yeah. And I think we're probably going to get there. The, 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 the thing that needs to catch up now is the haptic technology, is, is being able to physically touch things in the virtual world. As soon as we can be physically affected by what's in there, like pick things up and feel force and emotion. There's a potential for gigantic perversion in what you're oh saying. Oh my God, and it yes. will be hijacked, as in every format be, is. VHS, DVD, mm -hmm. they were all governed by that industry, you know, and I'm the sure. The porn side will just take over. Yeah, and. Ready uh, player porn. Ready player one. <laughs> I can't wait. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. That's it. So all the whole family will come out. And but see that this. might be what a great way to sublimate, you know, the kind of the, the dangerous perverts of this world. You can just send them into the <laughs> to the blow. I don't know how we got from this wonderful film for everyone into perversion, but that's you into the blow. And that's why we need to do it. So yeah. you know, Simon, that we end every show in song. So right. you always come prepared for me, of course, with something hit that it. hit it, whatever it is you're going to sing. I have no idea, but I want Pizza to hear it so bad. Yes, we I'm are. starting to go red now. Red, no, it just, you did that the last time too. So the fact that you don't remember, how, yeah, but you did I sing, know. and I won't say what it is that you sang. Was it "You Are My Sunshine"? That's the only thing I ever can. Well, remember you can singing. do that. You are my sunshine. Oh, come on. My only sunshine. Hey, there's a bit of popcorn down the side of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> it's digital popcorn. <laughs> that was it. That's what you're giving me. Yeah. I, can't, I, I, I wish I'd known. I mean, I could have brought my band. Well, you did know, but it just goes out. And it just, <laughs> yes. Next time, you can here? bring What's an instrument. <laughs> you can do all of that. I'll bring my know. drum kit I'm a little time. disappointed. You were great. I, I never want to disappoint past, you, Peter. That must be sad. But that song that has to be in your head that gets oh, you through life. Do you know what it is today? No. It's Beck's new song, Colors, because Edgar directed the video, and uh, it went live today, and it's so good. And it goes, um, I can't sing it because I don't know the words, but there's a great break, and it goes, on that. That's all I ever wanted. That's all we wanted. That was perfect. <laughs> Simon. Peter. Thank always you. a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you, sir. I like that I'm going red now. <laughs> I did. I was like, whoa. <laughs>